0: Good morning, Wisconsin. So let's pour that coffee and talk to some experts about what's going on in Milwaukee, Madison, Washington, and beyond. Broadcasting live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue in beautiful downtown Milwaukee. It's the Political Power Hour on WTMJ. Here's your host, Steve Scafidi. Should we talk about the government? Yes, from beautiful downtown Milwaukee with a beautiful weather day as well. Let's get right to it. Joining us on the Tri-County Contracting Hotline, former columnist, I think he's a current columnist, actually, at the Journal Sentinel, Craig Gilbert, and a fellow at Lubar Center at Marquette Law School. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. So we have spent on this program and many programs in the state of Wisconsin, radio, TV, and certainly the uh, the newspapers, talking about the redistricting battle in the state of Wisconsin years of fighting about this and it all comes down to basically what i said last week was well the legislature passed maps and governor evers signed them any of that surprise you or i guess the question is what does that all mean i guess
1: the surprise would be um you know i was kind of expecting i think a lot of people were expecting this to be a court-imposed map Mm -hmm. and and obviously the reason Republicans in the legislature ended up passing a map, the map that they did, the governor's map was because the prospect of the court picking a map. They liked even less was hanging over them. But so the way, the way it kind of happened and unfolded in the end with the Republicans saying, okay, we don't like any of these maps, but we think the governor's map uh, is not as bad for us as some of the other maps. Um, And we could talk a little bit more about that. Um, and then the governor really having to sign, sign it because it was his map. Um, so I think the you know the big event here was obviously the Supreme Court election um, last year that created a liberal majority on a court that had had a conservative majority for so long, and and they're revisiting the maps, rejecting the current map, the old map, and uh, that was the decider in all of this. That meant we were going to get maps. That, were, that created a more level playing field, a much more level playing field in Wisconsin than we've seen for the past 12, 13 years.
0: Could, could I describe it as fear of the unknown? They didn't know how bad, from the Republican perspective? These, uh, these... No,
2: I think
1: it was no. They knew, you know, there were four, there were six maps before the court. There was, there was the map that the Republican legislators kind of put out, which was very similar to the old maps, which, mm-hmm. you know, locked in massive Republican majorities, There was a a conservative-leaning map that um, basically, you know, made it extremely difficult for Democrats to win a majority, but it wasn't quite as lopsided as the Republican lawmakers' maps. And then there were four maps that all kind of aspired to be level playing fields, 50-50 maps. The differences among those four maps, including the governor's map, were not dramatic, um, but there were ways in which, you know, there were other maps that were a little bit better for the Democrats on the governor's map. And particularly there's this one issue of the state Senate. Uh, the state Senate has staggered elections, um, which means that roughly half the state Senate has already was already chosen in 2022, and Republicans won 12 of those 17 seats. So they had a big leg up going into the 2024 cycle, even under the new maps. And under the governor's map, it would have been all but impossible for Democrats to take back the state Senate in 2024. They would have had a chance to do it down the road in 26 or 28. Um, But there was another map, at least one other map that was before the court that would have actually given the Democrats a shot to win back the state Senate in 2024. And that's certainly something the Republicans did not want to see happen.
0: So who blinked here? Who gave in?
1: Well, I think In a sense, both sides did. Republicans blinked um, by swallowing hard and adopting the governor's maps. The governor, you could argue, was sort of backed into a corner in the sense that they were his maps. He had to sign them, even though some Democrats liked another map better. Um, But what we got was, you know, what we would have gotten under multiple maps which is we got a, a, a maps in which each party has a chance to win control of the legislature certainly the assembly in 2024 and the state senate after 2024 um, and and the differences beyond that are not great the other piece of this is that there could still be more litigation and so You could argue that it was a victory for the Democrats to have the legislature do what it did and have a legislated map as opposed to a court imposed map, because it's possible that a court imposed map would have been, you know, easier to challenge, you know, easier for for to challenge in court in the aftermath it's harder to challenge a legislative map i mean it was signed by a democratic governor and and approved by a republican legislature and that courts like to give some deference to that so it's kind of it's a real mixed bag and um and it's not over in the sense that um it's still quite possible that someone could litigate this further in federal court it's not going to happen in state court um and and try to play out the string and that you know there's a scenario under which that could delay the implementation of the maps for the 2024 cycle i'm not saying it's likely i'm just saying it's possible
0: yeah i had the governor on last week governor tony evers and he alluded to that he goes yeah in the state no but at the federal level certainly you throw the threat of a lawsuit or or a challenge to these maps that could i guess play out that it it doesn't get quantified and and set in stone by the time we're actually voting
1: yeah so that's You know, again, that's something, wait and see on that one. Um, I mean, it's kind of ironic because, you know, when there was a conservative majority on the state Supreme Court, Republicans wanted to litigate this in state court and Democrats wanted to litigate it in federal court. And now the shoe's on the other foot. And so we're talking about the exact inverse situation. Um, And, of course, the ultimate arbiter on the federal side is the U.S. Supreme Court. But the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, even though it has a strong conservative majority, um, has been kind of low to to intervene when, like I said, when there's a legislated map. And so you wouldn't expect the U.S. Supreme Court necessarily to be the one that that puts everything on hold. But, you know, it's possible it could happen um, at the federal level uh, short of the Supreme Court.
0: My guest this morning, Craig Gilberts, columnist of the Journal Sentinel, also fellow at Lubar Center, Marquette Law School. If you can just hang on through the break, I want to ask a couple questions about... Polling in Wisconsin, obviously Donald Trump winning South Carolina on Saturday. We've got some time between now and uh, between now and our primary. What it all means with Craig Gilbert after this on the Political Power Hour on WTMJ. Yeah! Joining us on the Political Power Hour this Monday morning, Craig Gilbert, columnist, The General Sentinel, fellow at Lubar Center, Marquette Law School poll. Big win for Donald Trump yesterday and or Saturday rather in South Carolina. Nikki Haley staying in the race. Let's talk about Wisconsin. The polling suggests from the MU Law School poll that Trump has a slight advantage over over a Joe Biden, but we have, what eight months till the election, Craig what do you what are you seeing?
1: Yeah, I mean that's not too meaningful eight months before the election. I mean the the head scratching thing about this race is that you know we could go on and on about how Joe Biden is a fatally flawed candidate, and we could go on and on about how Donald Trump's a fatally flawed candidate again. <laughs> Not talking about their merits, but talking about their political liabilities. They clearly both have major political liabilities, and so you're left pondering whose weaknesses are weaker, and that's a tough um, that's a tough thing to handicap. And so, uh, you know, right now, um, I think President Biden is certainly struggling in the polling, um, in the national polling. He's got higher negatives even than Donald Trump in the Wisconsin polling. They're both. On a par. I mean, they're both like net negatives of, of, you know, between minus 15 and minus 20. And so you're kind of left in this situation, sort of, where mathematically the deciding voters in the election is that group of voters, almost a fifth of the electorate that doesn't like either one of them. And then you get into these, you know, imponderable third party scenarios and you just sort of get into trying to figure out and forecast and predict the votes of people who don't like their choices, um, which means they're not locked into their choices, which means they can change their mind at any moment. And I don't think that's going to change too much between now and November.
0: So for me, the wild cards are two things, women, especially suburban women around Milwaukee and other places in the state, uh, and especially you talk about women's health and, and the abortion issue. And the other one is Haley supporters who absolutely don't want to and won't vote for Donald Trump. Those are big hurdles for the former presidents to jump over in terms of winning a general election. The, you know, the. The uh, nominations for the for the uh, for the run up to the nomination is one thing. Winning a general election, as Donald Trump learned in 2020, although some people still argue about those results, that's a much different scenario. I don't see that changing that much, for those two reasons: one, women, and two, Haley supporters, Republicans who absolutely detest Donald Trump. Yeah. So
1: there's always been two ways to look at the results of these Republican primaries and caucuses. And one is that, you know, Donald Trump is just sort of cruising toward the Republican nomination. But the other way is that if you think of him as the de facto incumbent president in his party, um, you know, we're consistently seeing 40 or 50% of Republican primary voters vote against him. And and that is perfectly fair to view that as a sign of weakness. Now, some of those people voting against him, you know, aren't hardcore Republicans. A few of them are Democrats. A lot of them are independents. But still, um, we know, we know that there's a portion of the electorate, even the traditional Republican electorate, that really, really doesn't want to vote for him, for Donald Trump. And so, yes, I think it's I think you're on the money with that and you're on the money with um, when you're talking about women and suburban voters in particular um, being a real Achilles heel for Donald Trump. And it's not just the polling we have. Every election cycle since he was elected president, where we've seen a Republican margins uh, shrink in the classic Republican outer suburbs of Milwaukee and also Democratic margins grow in the purple and blue suburbs, uh, inner suburbs of Milwaukee and Madison. That's a pretty that's been a pretty relentless trend. So, again, it's, it's kind of hard with every one of these election cycles. To, to put together a path to statewide victory for Republicans without at least um, holding the line in those, among those suburban voters and not losing more ground.
0: Do you get the sense that when you look at polling now, and I, I've had Charles Franklin on the show a number of times in the last few months, that polling now doesn't really tell us a lot about polling in November?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room. Uh, in the sense that with these two candidates uh, that lo- we look like we think we're getting, um, you know, they I think it's per- it's very predictable that it's going to be a close election. It would be different if, you know, Nikki Haley were the Republican nominee and all the polling is suggesting she would have a huge advantage over Donald Trump, uh, over, over Joe Biden. Uh, or it might be different if. Joe Biden hadn't decided to run for re-election and there was some, you know, Democrat who who was a reasonable candidate and he were facing Donald Trump. And that might not be a nail-biter, too. Um, So in that sense, the polls, you know, from month to month may not be telling us much more than the results of the 2020 election, the last time these two candidates faced off against each other. And so they're not polls are not precise enough as instruments. To tell you, you know, which side is going to win a very, very close election, they're just not that good, and no one should expect them to be that good. And then, on top of everything else, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the world between now and then. So, again, I think we're we're we are where we are, and I think it's probably good advice not to get too caught up in whether it's a two point Trump lead or a two point Biden lead.
0: The amazing thing about it is, of course, Trump could take a beating in the, in the, in the national numbers, he could take a real beating in, in how many people voted for Biden versus Trump, but he could win the, enough swing states to be the president of the United States. That's the fascinating thing to me. You win the right in the right places with the right numbers, you could squeak by and be reelected as president. You know, with a one Biden term separating your two uh, the two terms you had. That, that's a fascinating part of politics to me.
1: Yeah, the six states that matter were all close in 2020, but they were all won by Biden over Trump, and, and Wisconsin obviously among them. So you just have all sorts of possibilities when you think about pathways to an electoral college victory and which combination of states either candidate has to win. Certainly if Biden won the, the, the so-called blue wall states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, that would be enough. And then there's other combinations that come into play. And we haven't really even talked about um, other things that could happen between now and November, including a things that are going to happen in the courtroom involving that, Donald Trump. That was my and last B, question. That's another. Yeah, wild and D, card. given just obviously given their age, which is you know on everybody's mind, you know a health event affecting either candidate.
0: Do you think you know? Because I've talked about this a lot—the the, the, the Trump trials and all these different cases, uh, civil and criminal. But there's a lot of Trump supporters who could care less. And I was watching a lot of network TV over the weekend. And basically when they did, you know, on the street interviews, folks were saying, I don't care about any of that. I would, wouldn't change my vote for the most part. That, that's yeah, also, that's also fascinating.
1: Yeah, and it's pretty clear that it's actually probably strengthened him amongst a lot of Republican voters w- with respect to winning the Republican nomination. But that's not the issue. The issue is, are there general election voters out there um, who would have trouble um, who would have even more trouble voting for Donald Trump if he were convicted. And, you know, those people will exist. It's just a question of how many of them there are.
0: Craig Gilbert, columnist at General Sentinel, fellow at Lubar Center Marquette Law School. Always a pleasure to talk to you. We'll do it again down the road.
1: Absolutely. Anytime.
0: All right. Craig Gilbert, our guests. We'll take a little break here. We'll got the bottom of the hour news coming up. But then a fun. another fun guest, A.J. Bayapur, CBS 58, who talks a lot about politics. He's got all the newsmakers uh, when he's doing his great work, he'll be our 9.30 to 10 guest right here on the Political Power Hour on WTMJ. Thanks for joining us on this Monday, the Political Power Hour. I'm Steve Spitty, your host. Monday through Friday, 9 to 10. And I, I've talked about this before, but we, we sort of have a different angle each day, a different theme. Monday is, is uh, certainly top-line journalists. Uh, t- Tuesday is uh, political writers with a bias. So I have Dan Schaefer. Uh, I'm going to bring in Jeremy Janine into the mix. Uh, I've got James Wigderson, Christian Snyder, who writes for National Review Online. So a nice mix, both sides of the political spectrum. Wednesday, of course, public safety. There's always politics in public safety decisions. My, and my, my co-host on Wednesday is the uh, always fun Annie Schwartz. Thursday, we go we go to the legal system. And obviously, one of the reasons I did that this year is, is because of the Trump trials all those things swirling around, Registering was a part of that. So we have justices, former Supreme Court. We have judges retired in Milwaukee County, legal experts. I'm talking to Rick Essenberg uh, later today for the podcast. That's all part of the fun. And then Friday, of course, Joseph Pecky and Bill McCutcheon, two of the best guys talking about politics in the state. I always say it's the best hour of discussion about politics in Wisconsin. Obviously, I'm biased. After the break, A.J. Biopore is going to join us. Fascinating conversation about a lot of things. A lot of exciting developments in politics. Uh, certainly, the, the issue of redistricting is front and center. Uh, the MPS referendum. He talked to the superintendent of MPS. <laughs> thanks for tuning in on this Monday, the Political Power Hour on WTMJ. Got a great guest. Well, Craig Gilbert was a great guest, and we're going to follow that up with another one. CBS 58 reporter AJ Biopour joins us in studio. the morning.
2: Howdy, Steve. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So I, I'm a
2: big fan of your work.
0: I've followed your career as uh, as you've uh, sort of grown. You're still a young man.
2: I don't know if I go that far. Like look, I've got I've got I've got a lot more gray hairs you than you. You do when have a lot met. more gray, hair lot more gray hairs now. But
0: yeah, you, you spend a lot not all of your time, but a lot of your time covering politics. So let's let's get to some of these things. There's recent news about Janelle Branchon, campaign violation with the Trump campaign. How serious is this?
2: Well, I mean, you have somebody, you have a sitting state lawmaker who's being referred for possible felony charges. So, I'd say very serious. We did reach out to the Waukesha County DA uh, to whom these charges were referred for investigation by the Wisconsin Ethics Commission. Uh, It's kind of a a convoluted story, um, but at at the gist of it, you know, you have these individual donation limits. You can only give so much money to a a single political candidate. The accusation here uh, before the Waukesha County DA and other prosecutors throughout the state, including these three counties where the county GOP chapters are, is, in this effort in 2022, Adam Steen comes on. He's going to primary Wisconsin's top Republican lawmaker, mm-hmm. Speaker Robin Voss. They're upset. He's not doing enough to to look into these these false claims that former President Trump has made about the election being stolen in Wisconsin in 2020. The allegation is that Representative Branchon worked with the county GOP chapters in Langlade, Florence and Chippewa counties to kind of say, OK, you can only give so much money to Adam Steen, who's challenging Voss. Why don't we work together? We'll have people donate to you guys because there are no there are no such limits for what you can give to a, a county chapter. We'll work together and we'll find a way to either get that money to Steen or his vendors. We'll, we'll help his campaign and we'll kind of find a workaround for these campaign donation limits. Well, the ethics commission says we've looked into this and we find reason to believe that branching. uh The chairs of those three county chapters, uh, Adamstein's father, we believe that all these people committed a crime in this scheme, if you will. The question now is, what will the prosecutors do? So you have those three DAs in Florence, Chippewa, and Langlade counties. Uh, I did hear back from the Chippewa County uh, GOP chair. He said, I'm a member of Chippewa County Republicans, so I'm asking the Ethics Commission to refer this to one of my neighboring counties. I'm recusing myself. Uh, The Racine County uh, DA said, okay, we're asking for a little more information. Same for Sioux Opera and Waukesha County. They're saying, we're aware of this. We have this referral. We've asked them to provide a little bit more information, and then we'll decide whether to open a criminal investigation. Has Branson uh, publicly commented on this? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware Um, of. Not that I'm aware of. I've reached out to her. I haven't gotten a response. I've reached out to Adam Steen. Haven't heard back either. I don't know if they're Langlo altogether or if they're you know, perhaps going to speak, you know, they're going to pick to whom they respond. Uh, But as far as I know, Representative Branchin has not responded to this yet. You'll recall that there's another level of intrigue here because it is Representative Branchon who had been at the forefront of some of the push after the 2020 election to give a platform to, you know, really some baseless claims of election fraud in 2020. For for the Elections Committee, right? Right. And she served in that until some of these other things started to happen. Right. There was... um, a lot of criticism of the Wisconsin Elections Commission eventually over Branchen's role in, in pushing for Adam Steen to, to topple Voss, so to speak, which he nearly did. He ended up losing in that primary election, but it was, was fairly close. Uh, Branchen now doesn't even caucus with the Republicans. So she went from um, having a pretty high-profile position with the uh, you know, Elections Committee in the Assembly – to now not even caucusing with the Republicans. I
0: made this point last week. It's interesting that as a result of the, the fallout from the election investigation, which was supposed to look at how this election from a Republican perspective was stolen or rigged, we've, se- we've seen Gableman now be accused of violations. We've seen Janelle Branson accused of violations. It's, it's almost more interesting and, I think, illuminating that instead of finding things Real things that would have flipped the election to Donald Trump's favor, which didn't happen, and most reasonable people have accepted the results of 2020. We're seeing now
2: charges against Republicans, not Democrats. Right, and this particular charge, if it ends up being true and is is proven, it's a pretty basic election law violation. I mean, it's, it's as old as time. There's only so much that you can give to a candidate, and if you're scheming to work around those laws to get more money to that candidate, you know, skirting those laws... That would be the kind of thing that you look at and say, how credible is somebody who is saying there's election fraud, our elections are rigged, when these same people are involved in breaking the state's election laws? Now,
0: that's a great point, because that is certainly something that most... Voters, most citizens, most taxpayers will look at and say, you said there was fraud going on, but here now you are being charged with fraud. That's a serious serious miscalculation. A.J. Byaport, my guest, CBS58 is where he resides. After the break we sort of alluded to it, redistricting that the shift of power potentially in the state of Wisconsin, all because of a threat at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. We'll continue the conversation after this on the Political Power Hour on WTMJ. My part-time service in the Army Pockets of politics this hour, political power hour. That's, that's why we named it that. And you could give uh, Bill McCosh and Joseph Hecht some love on that one, because that's where it all started on the Friday show. A.J. Byport, my guest, CBS 58 reporter. Um, redistricting, I asked Craig Gilbert's uh, columnist for the Journal Sentinel about this earlier. Where does this story go? We've, we've seen now the signing by the governor. I had the governor on the show last week. He was, he was um, confident that there wouldn't be any challenges in Wisconsin. You cover this story in depth. What does this tell you? Where do you think this story goes next?
2: Well, I think in Wisconsin, you're conditioned to whenever something of political significance happens, you're waiting for the next lawsuit to come. Right. <laughs> but with this, with this particular instance, it seems less likely there's going to be a challenge to this. You'll recall in 2022, initially the Wisconsin Supreme Court with you know Brian Hagedorn when he was still kind of the swing vote on the court. In a 4-3 decision, they picked the governor's maps, but then they got struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court based on a Voting Rights Act violation. Well, all the parties involved, Democrat and Republican, were very careful in this redistricting process. If you look at the different map proposals that were submitted to the court, no one messed with the city of Milwaukee's boundaries. No one messed with those districts. No one wanted to get slapped on a VRA violation. The other possible challenge to this to the U.S. Supreme Court would be... You know, what you've heard about when people saying Justice Protosawitz should have recused herself. She took money from the Democrats and she she shouldn't have you know, had a vote on this case. Well, one uh, from the legal scholars I've talked to, very tough hill to climb. They're very skeptical that that claim would hold water in court. But beyond that, because of how this process ended up playing out, what's there to challenge with regard to? to justice pro to say which you have it you could I suppose conceivably say well she was part of a court that struck down these maps and put the wheels in motion here but this is not what happened two years ago you know if the US Supreme Court reversed a Wisconsin Supreme Court decision these maps are not in place through court order these maps are in place because the process happened the way it's supposed to work constitutionally legislature passes maps Governor signs them, So I even talked to Rick Essenberg from the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law, Law and Liberty, and he said it's less likely in his estimation that there's a challenge to these maps because you'd be asking the U.S. Supreme Court to undo a state legislative and executive branches actions. And, to, and when it comes to redistricting, the court's precedent at the at the federal level is redistricting is a state thing. So to meddle with not a state court order. But to meddle with a state legislative decision that a Republican legislature passed and Democratic governor signed, it really opened up Pandora's box. Yeah,
0: I mean, the process worked, albeit convoluted. It worked how it was supposed to work. Legislature creates the maps, governor signs, boom, we're done. Having said all that, and you, you laid it out brilliantly, I guess for me is, even if there's no grounds, doesn't stop somebody from actually attempting to have the Supreme Court here, which again can create and I could be wrong, I'm not a legal scholar, some delay in the process, because ultimately this will shape where district lines are, and and the governor's asked for congressional review as well from the state Supreme Court.
2: Right, and... The congressional review is interesting, and in that it's the governor's maps that yeah, are in right. pla- that are in place right. now. He's essentially asking his own maps to, for his own maps to for get thrown out. Basically, is what he was right. saying. And I think you know what the governor's lawyer's argument is. Well, the maps we made for the congressional districts a couple of years ago was based on a doctrine from a then conservative majority on the right. state supreme court saying minimize change. It was you know the so-called least change doctrine. We don't subscribe to that. We adhere to it because it was the court's order. They picked our map. Great. But we think that the rules that we followed to make that map were bad. So now we're asking a new court majority to issue new rules, so to speak, so we can have a new congressional map. Will that happen? I mean, it's hard to say. I I think that there's a better chance of that happening than there being some kind of valid challenge to the legislative maps. It, It seems as though from when you talk to legal scholars, it seems very likely that this is where it's at and, and you know the top Republican leadership in the legislature seems to not want to mess with this anymore at least in their public comments. They don't want to mess with the, the fight over the legislative maps. They want to get to work on figuring out who's going to go where because right now you have some open districts. Right now you've got some Republican incumbents who are paired in the same district and they got to figure out. Canodal and
0: Strobel, Canodal said he's not right.
2: Ready. You know Rob Coles in Green Bay. Right. You know Another longtime representative who's now in, in this mix. Uh, You have these questions about what's going to happen. All these things have to get sorted out in pretty short order, too, because, I mean, we're looking at primary elections coming up in August. I get a sense that it's very unlikely that you're going to have any further challenges to the legislative maps. Maybe if Brad Schimmel wins next year and there's a conservative majority on the court, it's revisited then. But as far as what's going on this year, at least from public comments from Republican leaders in the legislature, they want to get to work on sorting out who's going to run where let's field some candidates and do what it takes to to keep this majority after 2024.
0: And most of the experts i've talked to said more than likely at some point the assembly will 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 shift and it's not surprising given that you know that we have new map, we will have new maps um that that will be the most likely shift much
2: more difficult for democrats to take control of the senate which is a clear republican majority. Is that how you see it? Yeah, from the conversations i've had the assembly is very much going to be in play under these maps in 2024. The Senate won't be because half of the Senate seats are up for election this year. And based on the the 16 Senate seats that are up, the math doesn't work out for Democrats. They they could and probably will gain enough seats so that there's no longer a Republican supermajority. Right now it's it's 22-10 well, with the open seat after Alina Taylor took the, the right. judge position in Milwaukee County. But the math doesn't align for Democrats in 2024. The soonest, it sounds like, they could have a shot at having a Senate majority is 2026. But it seems as though the Assembly is very much in play this year.
0: And the interesting thing about the Assembly, potential shift, and nothing's guaranteed, trust me, it's politics in Wisconsin. The person who I think is the most powerful politician in the state, I've said it over and over again, I know there's a governor who's a Democrat. It's, for me, it's Speaker Robin Voss. Mm-hmm. That assembly shift means the end of the speakership of Robin Voss, which he's held, I think, longer than any other speaker in Wisconsin state history.
2: Yes, he is the longest tenured speaker in the history of the, the Wisconsin legislature. That's a
0: seismic shift, if that happens. Again, not yes. saying it's going
2: to. That would be massive. And right now, when you look at you know the, the political science of it, and they kind of break down where the map is leaning, they're saying that under the governor's maps, it's a 2.5% GOP edge. Under the current maps, it was about a 15% Republican right. edge. So the argument was, look, we understand that the political geography of the state sees liberal voters tending to be clustered in urban areas, which isn't just Milwaukee and Madison. It mostly is Milwaukee and Madison, but you also have, like, your La Crosse's, your Eau Claire's. We draw, try to draw a, a map as best you can. There's a natural edge for Republicans, but not a 15% edge. So it, with it being a more competitive map, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Because of political geography, Republicans have Still have an edge. They'll argue we should have a bigger edge than two and a half percent because the Democrats try to, you know, cut into that disadvantage they have. But you're really getting in the weeds. the The bottom line is this is a much more competitive map, it, it, and it does align more with what you see in, in statewide election results. Real quick question before we go to break:
0: You think it means that the Republicans and Democrats state of Wisconsin will get along better if it's it's more competitive?
2: If you're an optimist, if you're an optimist, I I, I think what people are curious, what I'm curious to see is, does this lead to more moderate candidates? Because you have more districts that are close to 50-50. Does it lead to – it's not so much you're a hardcore red district or a hardcore blue district, so really the only race that matters is the primary. If in this case it's a more evenly divided district, you have to cater to both liberal and conservative voters. I'm curious to see, does that lead to a rise in more moderate candidates getting elected to the legislature? CBS 58 reporter A.J. Biopore will take a quick break here. After the break, the MPS referendum is looming.
0: You talked to the superintendent, Keith Posley, and we'll talk about that as we wind it up to the top of the hour news right here in the Political Power Hour on WTMJ. All right, we're talking so much I almost ran out of time, but I want
2: you to, to um, pump your, your interview with Keith Posley from uh, from uh, MPS. Yeah, real quick, I was able to sit down with the superintendent, Keith Posley, and the biggest takeaway is we look at April 2nd, one, Uh, The voters should want more specifics from MPS about what its plan is for $252 million. But also understand this is such a complex issue. Only five big city districts in the whole U.S. have a higher poverty rate than Milwaukee public schools. There are real challenges facing this district. My biggest takeaway, honestly, is people need to pay more attention to this issue. It, It literally is the future of our city when we talk about our kids. Uh, the story, it, it's a two-part story. I look at what to do with building consolidation. That's all on CBS58.com, both parts of that story. So uh, it's a great, it's a huge, hugely important topic.
0: AJ Bioport. next time we'll talk about that one in more detail.